and that keeps coming back. If we can just get it, get everyone's attention again, that'd be great. Um, the question that keeps coming back is, are the talks being recorded? And uh, where you go to get the talks is go to the Avondale website. Um, on the Avondale website, on the right-hand side, is a media button. Go to the media button and then go to the podcasts. And uh, give us a couple of days and they'll be up on that website. So that's the audio. What about the visual can I? Can you get copies of the visual? And the answer to that is yes. You go to Arlene Taylor's website. So you put Arlene Taylor into Google and uh, get her website. And then ArleneTaylor.org. ArleneTaylor.org. And uh, how do we get it from there? It's just the powerpoints. You just go to the menu and click powerpoints, and then you come up to a list. Of right. And click on what you want. Okay. All right, so that's the two ways. So you can get the visual as well as the actual audio. Thank you very much. Let's welcome her back. So how many of you were here this morning? Okay, apparently I only gave one of the definitions for perfection. Is that correct? You remember I said, where was I going with that? And I completely forgot. Well, fortunately, somebody reminded me of that, and my brain gave it to me. So I'll give you that now. The first definition in many dictionaries for perfect is flawless. I'm never going to be flawless. In fact, part of the interesting thing about people is that they're not flawless. In fact, some diamonds are much more beautiful because of the flaws in them. The second definition for perfect in many dictionaries is well-suited to the task at hand. That everyone can be. And somebody said, well, give me an example of that. When I do presentations, I am not flawless. (laughs) We already know that. (laughs) I've said some interesting things this week. Don't know where they came from. My brain is well suited for the task at hand. You know, in general, I can get the information across. So stop, you know, getting nervous about the word perfect. None of us are flawless. All of us can be well suited for the task at hand. I'm really, really, joy is jumping up and down on my stage. That air is just... I truly thought I had suddenly started up with hot flashes again. (laughs) I was born in Calgary in the late 1800s. And it was 56 degrees below zero Fahrenheit when I came out the chute. And so I'm a cold weather girl. And it's... um, I can make it in the heat, but boy, marginally. So those of you who figured out how to do this, you have my undying gratitude. All right, let's go. Brain benders, top left. Riding low, low riding, second on the left. Tax on T, good job. Third on the left. It doesn't add up. Fabulous. Fourth on the left. Face up to it, good. Face up to it. Very literal. 
Uh, top right. Crying shame. Second on the right. Four square. Third on the right. Annual checkup. Fourth on the right. Get over it. I have no idea if any of you were here Wednesday morning when we did our first set. It took us ten times longer than this. Your brain, every time you do one, is honing those skills. So just imagine how good you can get after 10,000 hours of practice. All right, here's another one of the pictures. What do you see? Can you see that face illusion in the cloud? Does everybody see it? It's, um, you know, the clouds are sort of forming the hair. There's two eyes. There's a couple of eyebrows which look like the mountains in the, in the back. Here's a mustache. So you get the illusion of a face. Do you see that? I just think he does a fabulous job. Now let me turn it over and see if it looks different to you. Is it easier to pick out the face? It will be for some brains. So you look at this one, and then you look at this one, and it it looks very different to my brain. I don't know if that's because I'm not visual to start with, but I have lots of fun with these. Okay. In the time we have left, I want to talk to you about the science of epigenetics. How many of you are familiar with that? Good. A few of you. Fabulous. I guess the rest of you are going to learn something new and stimulate some neuron growth. You can go to my website, as Dr. French said, and you can click on Brain References, and then you'll come up with links by topics. And so almost everything I talk about, you can go there and find references about them, which means I don't have to clutter up the slides with... You know, references which are not going to copy down anyway. We as human beings are a combination of nature and nurture. You know that. So there are specific building blocks in the cell that get transmitted to us uh, and from generation to generation. And some of those building blocks involve the DNA sequence, which primarily involve genes and chromosomes. And others involve strands of regulatory proteins, and they have been come to be known collectively as cellular memory. So nature is what you inherit genetically with that DNA piece, 46 chromosomes, 25,000 genes. You know, they used to think we had three or 400,000 genes, but now they think we've got 25,000. And the variations come not only from those genes, but from the way epigenetic environmental factors act on those genes. So genetics is the study of heredity, and hereditary patterns of transmission of information primarily in, in, in primarily involving with genes and chromosomes. Then we've got nature. And nature is what environment does to imprint 
memory in your cells, which then can be passed to your subsequent generations. But it has nothing to do with genes and chromosomes. So in the cells that have a nucleus, and not all cells have a nucleus, those of you who have been studying science know that red blood cells have no nucleus. White blood cells definitely do, and most other cells. In those cells and the nucleus, you'll have this double helix, which involves the genes and the chromosomes, but you'll also have strands of protein that file and store memory and as that cell divides and multiplies it transmits those memories with that cell division and I just I have lots of fun with this I love it I'll tell you a story about the first time I came to Australia and a woman came and talked to me about this so this is called the science of epigenetics environment Impact, And it's determined that there's lots of environmental influences that can modify those strands of proteins and file memory. And I've got a fairly good-sized section of references on cellular memory because people freak. They think this is even, you know, more scary than Star Wars. So not only... Does the strands, do the strands of protein file memories, but they can turn genes on and turn genes off completely or partially, which means we probably get by with 25,000 genes, but they're modified by uh, epigenetics, and it won't change any of their DNA blueprint. So cellular memory is the common term for a form of what we call non-declarative memory. You know, there's declarative memory and non-declarative memory. You know the difference? Yes. Everybody know the difference? No. Um, declarative memory means that I consciously know something and I can state it to you. So I can say, hi, my name's Arlene Taylor. I know that consciously I can tell you. I can say, I thought I was dying in the last section. I was so hot. I'm feeling so much better. You know, that's de- I, I know something and I can declare it to you. Well, non-declarative memory, you know something, but you don't know how to declare it. For example, you all know how to ride a two-wheel bike. You cannot declare to me in anything, any way that makes sense, exactly what happens in your brain stem when you learn to ride a bicycle and then know how to do it the rest of your life. You know how to do it, but you can't declare it specifically by details. So uh, cellular memory is non-declarative memory, meaning you have the memory and it will push you toward behaviors, but you don't really know the reason you're getting pushed toward that behavior and you can't declare where it came from or anything like that. You can be impacted by cellular memory probably for at least the past three or four generations of your biological line. And you can influence the next three to four generations of your biological line with your cellular memory. Does that remind you of a Bible text? Woo! 
good. On to the third and fourth generations. There you go. Epigenetic memory, we think, helps to explain the reason that, for example, diseases run more in one family than another. So some families have a lot of cancer, but they don't have many strokes. Some people have a lot of heart attacks, but not very much diabetes. We think that has to do with cellular memory, especially with lifestyle patterns. Because we know that if you have a high risk, for example, for diabetes, and you've got cellular memory for eating patterns that are conducive to diabetes and not conducive to health, and you change your lifestyle, you may never develop diabetes. It's amazing. And we see differences observed among siblings. You know, they say, well, it came, you know, they got the same parents, they got the same family environment. No, they don't. They got the same donors for their genes and chromosomes, but they don't have exactly the same. Even identical twins don't. And certainly you can have different cellular memory because often the eldest child is born to a couple that don't have clue one about parenting, so they practice on the kid. And they're usually much harder on the eldest child than they are on subsequent ones because they don't, they're not so frantic about them anymore. And so the youngest child often has the very best time, unless they get picked on by older brothers and sisters. But the parents are so laissez-faire by the time the 13th kid comes along that whatever they do is great. And they're more likely to end up being who they are innately than the eldest child who is pushed to be a specific way so the parents look okay as parents. And then you've got the families who have some biological children and then they adopt a child or two and everybody says, well, they were raised in the same environment. And how come they're so different? Well, cellular memory, to say nothing of genes and chromosomes. So cellular memory, you get it in two ways. You get it donated to you. You don't have any control over that. I didn't choose my parents. Some people think they did. I certainly didn't choose mine. I'm not saying I wouldn't choose them, but I didn't choose them. And I did not choose the genes and chromosomes and cellular memory that happened to be donated to me from that first sperm and that first egg. So you will have a push toward behaviors based on cellular memory. And when you become a conscious of those thoughts, you can hang on to them and act on them, or you can say, that doesn't meet my lifestyle. Now I choose to do this. But people think when they have an urge to do something, they have to do it. Well, that's just so bizarre. You know, just because you have an urge to go have a beer doesn't mean that you're going to choose to go have a beer. But you might have cellular memory for it. And of course, it's whatever you develop as well. And you start that in utero. You start developing cellular memory from, you know, the second that sperm and egg decide they're going to cohabitate. And from then on, you just keep building cellular memory. And you build it by what you choose to think and what you actually choose to do. So the two cells that you start with in every cell nucleus has the genes and chromosomes and then it's got memories filed on the protein strands. 
So what do you know about your biological ancestors? The more you can learn about them, the better. Do you come from a family, um, like I did, French, English, Irish? The French and the Irish, could one of them could drink this room under the table. <laughs> so we've got cellular memory for drinking. My brother's an alcoholic. I made a different choice. We've still got cellular memory for that. And it can be passed on and on and on. That's just one example. I decided that with knowing what I know about my history, that I would choose to drink no alcohol. And some people say, well, that's pretty black and white, isn't it? And I said, well, with my history, yeah. Because I might like it. The minute I drink some, my cellular memory might go, oh, I remember this, let's have some more. And that's not the road I want to travel. And so for me, that's how I've made that choice. My brother made a different choice, and it has really negatively impacted his life. So what do you know about their lifestyle? Do you come from a family system where... The males were told to go out and sow their wild oats, and after they had sex with a hundred women, then they found somebody that they decided they wanted to marry. Because they will have built cellular memory for every person that they had sex with. And it will impact their ability to be monogamous. So this business about go sow your wild oats is just garbage. I think that's the reason the, Bible, the biblical model is you only ever have sex with one person because you only build cellular memory with one person. And we don't do that. You know, we have serial monogamy in the United States. It's not something you eat. <laughs> you know, you meet somebody and you start dating them and you become friendly and you decide you're going to sleep with them. So now you're building cellular memory for every sexual activity you do with that person. It's in your it's in your cells. And then you break up. And now you find somebody else. And you get friendly with them and you go to bed with them. And you're monogamous while you're going to bed with that person. But that's not the model. And we find that especially males, because they are more impacted by their sexual history, surprisingly, than females, uh, males who have a hard time being monogamous usually come from a family line of non-monogamous males. And they often have multiple cellular memory built with any number of women before they decide to be monogamous. So women, you want to know a little bit about their background, because you might not want to, um, you might not want to do that. And somebody said to me a couple days ago, we were talking about that, but I love him. Well, bully for you. You might love a little skunk really well, but you're not going to bring him home with you. So you love him. Do you want to spend the rest of your life with that person with what you know about their background and cellular memory? And do you want them to be the parent of your child? I mean, this puts a whole different spin on the kind of choices we need to make. Depression runs in my family. I already told you that. 
So I had to make some decisions about whether I was going to go down the family line or whether I was going to break that cycle. And it required that I learn to be a positive thinker. Required that. The other way that it gets donated to you is if you happen to get an organ transplant. And that's when it gets really fun. You know, doctors knew about this for years before anybody was willing to talk about it because they thought people wouldn't want an organ transplant if you talk about the fact that you're liable to change after you get a, a donor organ because guess what? The owner you, the donor organ that you receive has cellular memory from that donor. And that's real. So the first, the first time I came to Australia to lecture was in, I think, 2000. And we were just beginning to learn about cellular memory. And I'd made a comment about cellular memory, and a woman came up to me after the lecture, and she said, i got to go. I got to call my brother. I have to apologize. Oh, well, this would be a good story. I said, uh, what are you going to apologize about? Well, she said, I was just getting ready to leave the house and come to the meeting tonight, and the phone rang, and it was my brother. And he says, hi, sis. How do you eat spaghetti? She said, I was rude. I said, you know how I eat spaghetti. I have no time to talk to you about such dribble. i got to go hear some woman from the States talk about the brain. And he goes, no, 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 wait. How do you eat spaghetti? I think I'm losing my mind. She said, I get a spoon and a fork, and I twirl the spaghetti in the spoon and stuff, but shove it in my mouth. Can we go? Can I go now? He goes, how do I eat spaghetti? She said, I was even ruder. She said, you take a knife and a fork and you cut your spaghetti up into half-inch lengths, shove it in your mouth. Can I go now? He goes, well, it's something really weird is going on at our house. He says, this is, a, this is the first night my wife has cooked me spaghetti for three months. And he said, I sat down at the table and here's my plate of spaghetti and here's a knife and a fork. And I said, hon, something's missing. She goes, nothing's missing. He goes, yeah, something's missing. She says, I'm telling you, nothing's missing. And he said, I'm telling you, something is. And instead of arguing, to her credit, she says, we'll get up and find what's missing. (laughs) He doesn't even know. So he gets up, starts wandering around the kitchen, pulling drawers open, comes to the flatware drawer, sees the soup spoon, says, ah, this is what's missing, picks up a soup spoon, walks back, sits down at the table, starts twirling his spaghetti in the spoon, and they both freak out. Three months before, his sister donated him a kidney. He's now eating spaghetti differently because he's got cellular memory from how she eats spaghetti on his kidney. For real. So now there was a good Methodist minister back in California. He had a heart transplant. When he was ready to go back to his parish, he was driving down the main street of town. And he saw the red, the Green Lantern Pub. And he got this overwhelming urge to pull over and go in and have a pint. Okay, he never drank. He was a teetotaler. And he's thinking that he's losing his Christian experience. And every time he drives by the Green Lantern, he has this urge to bark and go in and have a pint. So he went to talk to his physician and he said you know this is really not working very well for me as a minister because I have this all I think about is a pint 
He said, uh, could that have anything to do with my surgery? And the doctor hummed and hawed, and then he said, well, well, probably. We do, we do know that sometimes people who have transplants have um, a change in the kind of music they like to listen to and the kind of food they like to eat and so on. He goes, well, who gave me my heart? Well, he says, we, we don't disclose that. Well, he says, I need to know. Petition the transplant bank. So the bank said, well, we're not going to tell you the name of the person, but we will tell you that the heart you got came from a man who was killed in a DUI accident. We don't know how long that cellular memory is going to last. Is every time those heart cells multiply and divide, they're moving along the desire to drink beer. But we know that you can build new cellular memory that's stronger, that overrides the old cellular memory. And so it's going to be interesting to see how long he drives by the Green Lantern and feels the urge to go in and have a pint of beer. I told him, drive down another street. (laughs) Oh, boy. So a um, kindergarten teacher, she had lung transplant. She went back to teaching kindergarten, and she came home after her first day back, and she was really distraught. And she said to her husband, you know, the weirdest thing happened to me today. She said, you know, middle of the afternoon, we're getting ready to have school clothes, and I got this overwhelming urge to hop up on my desk and throw off all my clothes and start dancing. he goes, well, I hope you refrained from that. We need the work. Well, she said, I didn't do it, but I felt like it. And every day she felt like it. So she went back to her surgeon, and it turns out that she got her set of lungs from a go-go dancer who died when she fell off the pole. So there was a really good Methodist minister and his wife, you know, loved the Lord, couldn't have children. So a member of their congregation got pregnant as an unwed unwed mother when she was 15, and that was back in the days when you could arrange your own private adoption. So the minister and his wife agreed to adopt the baby, a little baby girl. They did their very, very best for that little girl. And guess what happened when she turned 15? She got pregnant. And the congregation was not amused. The uh, church elders came to the minister and said, you know, this is really not a good example for the congregation. Your daughter is unwed pregnancy. And the minister goes, what am I going to do? You know, we thought we were giving her a really good upbringing. And he almost left the ministry because the congregation was so non-affirming. They began to investigate into the girl's background. They already knew that her mother was a 15-year-old unwed mother. They found out that the girl's mother was a 15-year-old unwed mother, and they think the same thing happened to the grandmother. So this is now the fourth generation. If they'd known that and we'd known enough about cellular memory, they could have said to the girl, you come from a family line. 
where women seem to get pregnant unwed about the age of 15. So when you turn 15, somewhere around there, you'll probably have the urge to become sexually active and even get pregnant. If you want to break that cycle, we'll help you. But the only way you do it is to do it consciously. For several years, I was a school nurse. I was a school nurse one year in a high school where there were 1,700 kids, and I was in my office one day, and the door opened, and a teacher shoved a 17-year-old boy into my office and said, he's yours, and shut the door. I looked at him carefully. He wasn't really one of mine. So I introduced myself and asked him the reason that he was in my office. And he goes, I don't know. I said, well, there must be a reason that she opened the door and shoved you into my office. I don't know. And after about ten minutes, I realized that we were getting nowhere. So I said, okay, let's try this. The second that the teacher grabbed you by the ear and walked you down to my office, what were you doing at that moment? Oh. What were you doing at that moment? Well, it turned out that he was up in the air ducts, um, peeping Tom into the girls' locker room. They heard a noise up there. They found him and collared him, sent him to me. So I said, um, got any brothers and sisters? Because I'm thinking cellular memory. I mean, what 17-year-old climbs up in the air ducts and does peeping Tom activities in, in the girls' locker room for no reason? doesn't happen. You know, my favorite quotation is, every pathology has an ecology. There's always a reason for behavior. And it's often cellular memory. So I said, do you have any brothers and sisters? He says, i got a twin brother. I said, where does he go to school? He goes to school at the high school across the town. So I get on the horn to the school nurse, and I said, I have so-and-so in my office at this high school. Uh, we just caught him upstairs um, doing peeping Tom activities. Uh, he says his brother's in your school. Have you had any problems with, with him with inappropriate sexual activities? The school nurse says, funny you should ask. We caught him in the gym last week. He was exposing himself to a group of girls, and they were underwhelmed. <laughs> so I said to this uh, young man, Is your, does your father live with you? Yeah, he lives with us, but he's a traveling salesman. It just so happens he's home right now. I said, okay, here's the phone. Get him on the phone. Get him in my office. So pretty soon in comes mother and father. So now the four of us are sitting in the office, and I say to the father, we just caught this son up in the air ducts doing peeping tong stuff, and his brother over at the other high school is in trouble for exposing himself inappropriately to the girls in the gym. Have you ever had any trouble with aberrant sexual behavior? He looks at the floor. I can outweigh anyone. After about 15 minutes, he says, Well, yeah. Uh, actually, he says, I'm on probation in another state for, for peeping Tom activities. Okay, we've got two generations now. 
So I say to the father, is your father still alive? He goes, yes, actually, he just retired and moved to town to retire here. I says, here's the phone, get him in here. So now he got the grandfather. So I tell the grandfather the whole scenario, and I say, have you ever had any problems with inappropriate sexual activity? Okay, he starts crying. Tears are running down his cheeks, and he goes, I hoped I would never have to tell my family this. I did, um, I did time in the state penitentiary for attempted rape when I was 18. We got three generations. This is my brain's opinion. I think if the grandfather had been honest with the father and said, you know, we must come from a line where we've got cellular memory for inappropriate sexual activity. This is what happened to me. If you want to break that cycle, I'm willing to help you. And if the father had said the same thing to his twin sons, I don't think that that kid would have been sitting in my office. So a lot of parents don't want to admit the mistakes they've made to their children. And I am not suggesting you go into all the gory details. But if you think it might remotely be related to cellular memory and you want to stop the cycle, then you've got to talk about it. Now, this was hard for me with my middle son, who has the little five-year-old who loves me. He's what we call a saver. For whatever reason, that middle kid is always attracted to girls that have multiple problems, and he's going to help them. And you know kids like that exist. And while I'm happy that they have empathy and they want to help people, the kind of people they want to help are not going to usually be very good marriage partners. So one day he calls me up at work and he goes, Mom, I met a new girl. And I thought, oh, good. <laughs> he said, can I bring her home for dinner? Always. I'd rather have him on our property watching them and so on. So he comes in with this girl and I have to tell you, she was a knockout. I mean, even I could tell that and I'm not visual. <laughs> and don't have anywhere near the testosterone he's pumping. <laughs> So we have dinner with her, and she was very sweet and very pleasant. And uh, he drove her home, and he came back, and he walks in the house, and he says, I really like her, Mom. And I said, well, she seems very nice. What do you know about her? Well, not a lot, except that um, she's a heroin addict. She's clean right now. She hasn't had any heroin for five weeks. And I go, this is good. This is bad. <laughs> because I have a great regard for the fact that people can clean up their act and live a much cleaner, healthier, functional lifestyle. Okay, that's one piece. I would rather not have a heroin addict for the mother of my grandchildren. Because she's going to pass cellular memory for heroin to my grandchildren. And they're going to start out life one down that could have been avoided. But what do you do? (laughs) 
You tell a saver all the mistakes they're going to make and it just makes them want to help them worse. So I did a lot of praying and said very little. And she was welcome at our house anytime and she really was she really was a dear. The only thing I said to him one day was do you want to have children after you get married? Not everybody does, and I have no agenda for you. Just wondered. Yeah, he says, I do. He says, I want to have at least two, maybe three, like our family. And I said, well, this is, this is just something I'm throwing out there. Um, she's got a history of heroin addiction. It's in her cellular memory on the strands of protein you need to know that she's always going to be at risk for relapse unless she really works her program. And if you have three kids and she relapses, who's going to take care of the kids? That's my only caution. Then I bit my tongue and prayed. They dated until he was probably 19 and a half. And he told me he thought that he was going to go buy a ring and ask her to marry him. And I know his corpus callosum isn't even done yet. So I said, um, you know, if that's your choice, I'll certainly support that. But remember, your corpus callosum isn't done yet. I'd really think you'd do yourself a favor if you wait to get engaged till you're 21. I says, I'll think about it. More praying. He comes home about two months later, walks into the house, and you mothers know when your kid is not doing well. He sits down on the couch, slumped on the couch. I said, hi, welcome home. Have a good day? Stupid question, just look at him, but trying to start the conversation. He goes, mom, I had the worst day of my life. I said, ooh, what happened? Well, he says, um, went to pick up my girlfriend, I had to take her to the ER because she relapsed and overdosed on heroin. You know, that's really an oxymoron for my brain. I regret she relapsed. I'm so glad she did it before they got married. And I said, that's really tough. That must make you feel absolutely horrible. He says, it does, Mom, but I can't marry her. And I'm going, you're trying to convince me of that? (laughs) He says, you know, what if, what if I have two or three kids and she relapses? Who's going to take care of them? I didn't remind him. I had already told him that. So he didn't marry her. But I'll tell you, that, that's a real dilemma for me, thinking about cellular memory. And, and I'm sure that you've had occasions to do the same thing. So... Hold everything. It's talking to me. Oh, it says my battery is very, very low. Does that mean the air conditioning has kicked off the... Or are we not even plugged in? We weren't even plugged in. Life is so much fun. (laughs) Okay. 
I think it's recharging. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh boy. Okay. So start thinking about the type of cellular memory you develop. Start thinking about what kind of urges toward behaviors you get, and you have no reason, where, no idea where they came from. Uh, what, what happened when your mother was pregnant with you? Oh, I'll have to tell you another story. This one is wonderful. I was working with Dr. Benzinger, who's a brain function researcher in Texas. Mother came to visit her with a 14-year-old son. They come in and sit down. And the mother says, we've been to about 20 psychiatrists. <clears throat> My son is 14. He's already tried to kill himself by hanging 12 times. He's been unsuccessful. But the psychiatrist can't find anything wrong with his brain. And we don't know why he keeps trying to kill himself. She'd been working with Dr. Tomatis in France about cellular memory. He had a slightly different term for it. So she said to the mother, hmm, tell me about your pregnancy. What happened during your pregnancy? Start with, uh, start at the beginning. Was this child wanted or unwanted? Because researchers believe that the fetus knows whether it's wanted or not wanted, whether it was planned or an accident, and whether it's the gender that they're supposed to be. And she said, well, yes, we wanted the child. I got pregnant. Everything went really well. Um, I went. I was teaching second grade, taught first, second, and third months of the trimester. And then my father, my mother died. My father was not having, was not doing well living alone. So my husband could work anywhere, and we decided we'd move back to the family home and live there with my father. And so we moved there during the fourth month of pregnancy, and. And my husband liked the location, and I got another teaching job, and everything was going well. And then she quit talking. And Dr. Benzinger said, okay, what happened in the fifth trimester? Uh, the fifth month. Second trimester. Nothing. She kept looking at her. Nothing. And finally the mother says, well, we never talk about what happened during that fifth month. And Ben Singer says, well, I think you might as well start talking about it. Your kid's already tried to kill himself for a dozen times. The next time he might be successful. And, and the mother said, well, fifth month, came home from school one day, hit the garage door opener. The garage door went up, and there was my father hanging from a rafter. He had committed suicide. At which point, the 14-year-old jumped up from his chair and said, That's it! I've dreamed of somebody hanging my whole life, and somehow I thought I was supposed to do it. How does a fetus create a picture of what the mother saw? We know what happens. That seven years ago, he's never offered to try to kill himself since. So, the more you can learn about your family of origin, I think the better. And you have passed on to your children what you inherited and what you developed. And boy, I think you need to take that into consideration when you decide who you're going to marry. What's their family system like? What kind of cellular memory have they developed? Do you want that for your child? 
And you're going to have to make some hard decisions sometimes. And it does not matter that you love them. There's more considerations than that. So what kind of addictive behaviors are in your family? Oh, my mother. I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. I should not be alive. My mother and father were not vegetarians. They got pregnant with me. I've already told you I was supposed to be a boy, and I was supposed to be born on my dad's birthday, and I screwed up badly. When she was five months pregnant with me, she and my dad went out for dinner at a roadhouse. They had chicken, and there was something wrong with the chicken. Dad had something else. She had the chicken. She got deathly ill. She spent days in the hospital, and they were pretty sure that she was going to die or lose me, either one. But she didn't. She survived. I don't know anything about this. I have pretty bad allergies up until about age 30, and I think partly that had to do with the way I was living and not understanding mindset and health and so on. So I go to the... I go to the physician to get tested for allergies. And, you know, that's not fun. You know, they, they put all these rows of needles of little bits of antigens under your skin, and pretty soon it's, you know, you're itching, and it's very unpleasant. When he did the tests, he said to me, are you a vegetarian? And I said, yes, actually, I am. My mother became a vegetarian when she got out of the hospital while she was pregnant with me. And so by the time I was born... She wasn't fixing meat, so I'm vegetarian. So don't test me for any meat, because I don't need any. He goes, well, why don't I just test you for three or four things, just for interest's sake? He said, I'm going to check you for beef and shellfish and um, chicken and, and pork. Okay, fine. Well, the antigen for chicken nearly cost me my arm. It got this huge wheel, you know, edema. It was awful. And I went back to the doctor, and he goes, I thought you told me that you don't eat meat. I said, I don't. He goes, well, where's the chicken reaction coming from? I said, I don't know. Well, he says, you better call your mother and ask her. So I called mom, and I said, you know, I've just, my arm is three times its size from a reaction to chicken antigen. I've never had chicken in my life that I know of. The doctor said, call you. Got any ideas? She goes, well, I nearly died of food poisoning from chicken when you were five months pregnant. My brain's got cellular memory really bad for chicken. So avoid slipping me any chicken because it won't be pleasant. So those are just scratching the surface of cellular memory. But it's real, and I encourage you to pay attention. And if you've got decisions to make, take that into account. And when you get the urge to do behaviors and you don't know where that came from, think cellular memory, and now you choose whether you keep thinking that thought and act on it or whether you choose a different thought. All right, we're done. Thank you so much for coming out in such a now lovely, cool room. <laughs> when I come back in April, is it going to be warm or cool?
Good answer. Okay, just somebody remember that this room does have air conditioning in case it heats up. So Dr. French has um, directed me that we'll spend the whole time, I, I can only be here for three lectures next year, but we'll spend the whole time on male-female differences because there's such fun research about that. So if you think you know everything about the opposite gender, stay home. If you think there might be something you could learn, I'd love to see you again. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. Um, first of all, we just wanted to say thank you with a little tiny gift, which is not very much, but hopefully it'll be something that you will enjoy. Don't you love it when someone gives you a gift and says, it's not very much? <laughs> you have given me the most valuable gift. Make me think it's fabulous and I'll like it better. <laughs> yeah, do good. Practice. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to to talk for a couple of secs about um, next April, and that is that it's not on the weekend, it's actually in the middle of the week. Um, Dr. Taylor is uh, going to, I think, Brisbane and uh, to Newcastle and squeezing us in between those two appointments. So it's actually um, on Wednesday at 10 o'clock, Wednesday night and Thursday. So I'm sorry it's not in the weekends, but uh, we would love to have you come and join with her, particularly on that topic of the differences between male and female and, and all that. I'll learn heaps of things, I'm sure. And I know that probably all of us will. Thank you so much for all the information that you give us every time. We really, really appreciate it. I like to be here. Yeah. I really enjoy this. Very much so. feel like... Um it doesn't feel like a strange country. And I think that, well, it is a strange country, but it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> because I think I was born in Canada, which, I mean, I know I was born in Canada. <laughs> but I think there's some similarities. And Canada's kind of a strange country, too, you know. So I like, I like different things. So I like it here. Oh, I got lots of cellular memory. But I'm building it for Australia, too. You realize that. So this is good. And just to remind you again, where do you, where do you get the information at the website, the two websites, one is the Avondale one for the actual, uh, the vocal, and then go to the ArleneTaylor.org. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. <laughs>